Hello and thank you for listening to the second season of the iStart PIA Relay podcast series brought to you by Dementia Researcher. iStart is a professional society and part of the Alzheimer's Association, representing scientists, physicians and other dementia professionals active in researching and understanding the causes and treatments of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In this five-part series, we have once again asked members of the iStart professional interest areas to take turns at interviewing their colleagues and being interviewed themselves, with the interviewee going on to be the next episode's interviewer. We'll be releasing one of these podcasts each day in the build-up to the Alzheimer's Association's International Virtual Conference to showcase the work of iStart PIAs. Thank you for listening. everyone and thanks for joining us. I'm Joe Keane and I'm a clinical academic lecturer in old age psychiatry. I work at Queen's University Belfast and I'm communications officer for the Lewy Body Dementias PA. Today I'm delighted to be talking with Zainer Ismail. Hello Zainer, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us which PA you're involved with please. Hi, I'm Zainor Ismail, and I'm a professor of psychiatry, neurology, epidemiology, and pathology at the uh, University of Calgary, uh, affiliated with both the Hotchkiss Brain Institute and the University of Cal- uh, sorry, and the O'Brien Institute of Public Health. And I'm also affiliated with the, the University of Exeter and their old age psychiatry program. I am the academic lead of the neuropsychiatric syndromes professional interest area. Perhaps to start with, you could tell us a little bit about your own research. What brought you to dementia research, for example? As a, a child, I was close to my grandmother. And, you know, from what I've read is that if you have strong, you know, relationships with seniors when you're young, it seems to be more of those folks, say in the medical field, go on to work in geriatrics. And I think I'm, I'm fairly textbook that way. Uh, I toyed with, you know, different fields in in medical school but um the brain i always thought was the most fascinating organ and so um i ended up pursuing uh old age psychiatry geriatric psychiatry with then uh additional subspecialty training in uh, uh, behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry so my work really captures the interface of psychiatry and neurology um, especially with respect to uh, psychiatric symptomatology, uh, y- you know, observed through a neurological window or framework. Some of what I do is using neuropsychiatric symptoms as early non-cognitive markers of dementia or as prognostic markers of dementia. And a great deal of this comes out of the PIA. The large uh, bulk of my work in my lab involves mild behavioral impairment and the MBI work really evolved from the neuropsychiatric symptoms uh, syndromes PIA and it's work that continues on in the PIA but it certainly greatly influenced and informed my career. MBI is the is, is characterized by the emergence in later life so de novo emergence of neuropsychiatric symptoms that are persistent so they're not transient or fluctuating. They persist for 
you know, a number of months, at least six months. And attendant with the emergence and persistence of those symptoms in older life is a greater risk of incident cognitive decline and dementia. For some, it's the index manifestation of dementia. And this is pretty novel because, you know, we, we have a cognocentric paradigm of dementia. We, we appreciate cognitive changes. If someone comes into clinic and they comp complain of memory impairment and they've always had memory impairment, then you say, okay, well, that's not dementia. You know, we're looking for change. But for some reason, that same notion um, of changes in behavior doesn't seem to resonate or penetrate. If someone comes into clinic and they're 67 years old uh, and they've never had, you know, a psychiatric history, we should give them credit for those 67 years. And if they present with new onset psychiatric symptoms, something's up. And if we look back at the history of dementia, Auguste D., Alois Alzheimer's patient that we all know and have read about, presented to hospital, not with cognitive symptoms, but with emotional dysregulation and suspiciousness. So when we look at the epidemiological data in, you know, in dementia in general, 59% of people present with a neuropsychiatric symptom before a cognitive diagnosis. And we kind of expect that uh, for FTD, you know, with disinhibition and apathy baked right into the, into the, the construct of FTD. And we expect that with Lewy body, uh, you know, with, with psychosis being such a prominent part, but it's not really thought of in Alzheimer's. And, and again, when you look at the data, 30% of people who develop AD actually have an initial behavioral prodrome. So if we are looking for earlier markers of the most common type of dementia, then uh, perhaps in invoking and in including neuropsychiatric symptoms is uh, one way that we can do that. So that's the work um, of my lab and, you know, to a, to a degree um, of our PIA as well. And there are many different projects going on, whether it be looking at the uh, cross-sectional brain behavior correlates, um, associations with imaging or fluid biomarkers with cognitive status, and then changes in all of those markers over time. I also do clinical trial work, um, not only in terms of the overall dementia cognitive you know, um, uh, uh, interventions with novel agents, but also in terms of neuropsychiatric symptoms and, and have three ongoing studies right now for agitation and dementia. So it's an area in the, in the dementia field, it's the neuropsychiatric symptom, which I seem to be spending more time with at, a, at an intervention level. And I'm very interested in, in teasing out the different domains within the IPA diagnostic criteria for agitation. Um, I feel that the excessive motor activity, the verbal aggression and the physical aggression, while related, probably captured different groups at different stages of illness. And we've done some work in this area now. Um, we've just published a, a paper in Alzheimer's and dementia that utilized both the uh, Cohen-Mansfield agitation inventory and the neuropsychiatric inventory clinician version to derive and abstract measures that capture the three IPA agitation domains. And then we validated them and are exploring that in other data sets, including a Canadian study uh, called STAN. Uh, and, and 
you know, looking to see if that clinical impression that verbal aggression precedes physical aggression, if that's the case, is it an earlier way to detect agitation? And then can intervention more, uh, you know, rely more on non-pharmacological interventions or more benign or less impactful treatments? What we don't want to see is when agitation is defined, is, 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 you know, described or initially captured at a crisis stage when someone punches someone else or pulls a staff's hair or gouges their eyes, then you're in a situation where it's emergent, they might get sent to hospital, they might lose their placement, antipsychotics may be necessary. We don't want to do that. So what I really am interested in is capturing the agitation syndrome earlier on in the disease course when it's less acute, and then cholinesterase inhibitors uh, or, or serenergic drugs in addition to non-pharmacological agents might be more appropriate in order to decrease the, the burden of antipsychotics. And, uh, and again, I think cholinesterase inhibitors are another area in which I'm interested in because we are in the, in the stage where not only are we de-prescribing them more often than prescribing them, that you know, there's a clinician nihilism such that they don't want to want to start these medications. And what I see in my nursing home practice, for example, is that when cholinesterase inhibitors are discontinued, I see emergent agitation psychosis usually about six or eight weeks. And the, you know, the longer term data as they start to trickle out are showing, hey, wait, these medications may actually treat neuropsychiatric symptoms, even though that wasn't evident in any of the short trials. A really nice paper out of the Swedish Dementia Registry showed that um, um, those uh, patients with AD who are uh, prescribed cholinesterase inhibitors have a lower probability of being prescribed antipsychotics. To me, that's really exciting. So if we're trying to find interventions that are safer, um, we have medicines already that might be helpful. So that's something I'm interested in as well in, in terms of finding optimal pharmacotherapy. You mentioned your work in nursing homes. And of course, during COVID, we know that it's been, it's, it's been quite difficult uh, to, to use some of the non-pharmacological methods that we favor when it comes to um, behavioral disturbances. And also we know that the environment can be a big factor contributing to, to MBI and behavioral issues in general. How has, how has COVID influenced your, your, your day-to-day work, your clinical work? Joe, this is this is a remarkable thing. We we had this global pandemic, and it fundamentally changed the nature of our interaction with our patients and their interaction with the world. And it was all for the worse. Um, I, you know, over the last fifteen months, you know, I, I've been in practice twenty two years now, and over the last fifteen months, I saw more psychosis in that patient population than it ever had before. And strangely enough, Joe, I saw more Parkinsonism as well. And that was really odd. And I'll, and I'll, I'll say in, in, you know, in the series of homes I'm working in now, I have about a five year reference range in this last year. Yeah, they've been more agitated, more psychotic, more Parkinsonized. We've always written in grants and studies that you know, non-pharmacological interventions are safe. And I actually wrote um, in a recent protocol that, well, maybe maybe not as safe as we once thought, given the infection risk. And it's challenging. How do you how do you administer 
um, you know, Montessori interventions remotely when the, the nature and the benefit of that comes from the tactile work, you know, from the sensation and the, and the, and the, and the, the patients using their hands to express, say, lost, you know, verbal skills. Like it's extraordinarily challenging. But um, my goodness, I, I found them to be, yeah, you know, sicker than I've ever seen them. Social isolation certainly being a part of that, because with the easing of restrictions, for a number of people, we've seen the agitation decrease a little bit. But you wonder also about the, the you know, the neuro COVID and and you know the the the, the CNS sequelae, uh, you know, of of direct, you know, uh, um, central consequences of of the the virus but you know more recently studies showing that there's a, a you know a cns inflammatory burden what is this going to do down the road are we going to see a, a, a dementia pandemic secondary to the COVID pandemic um what is the nature of our relationships with our with our patients gonna gonna look like yeah it's a big it's a big challenge ahead certainly um for, for anyone working in clinical services and um, could I ask you specifically about the work that you're doing um, in prodromal DLB and in PDMCI regarding behavioral disturbances and neuropsychiatric symptoms? Certainly. Uh, you know, in the same way that we've applied MBI to Alzheimer's because, because neuropsychiatric symptoms in preclinical and prodromal AD were underappreciated, we can apply that to other dementias as well can be applied to FTD because we know there are robust, uh, you know, um, cohort of symptoms that can emerge beyond just apathy and, and disinhibition. In DLB, it's, it's really quite robust, especially in psychosis, but also mood, um, you know, anxiety, impulse discontrol, et cetera, with the complicating factor that if they are on you know, dopaminergic agonists, there might be some impulse discontrol there. We, um, we looked at uh, PDMCI, a, a group uh, through a cohort run by Dr. Uri Monshi here in Calgary and administered uh, the MBI checklist to this cohort of patients with Parkinson's and found that those with higher MBI checklist scores had lower uh, MOCA scores, Montreal Cognitive Assessment, and were more likely to be um, to have to be diagnosed with PDMCI as opposed to, to PD. We also found some middle temporal atrophy in that same group. Subsequent analyses then showed some functional connectivity differences as well. So the story in the alpha-synucleinopathies seems to be thus far similar, such that the the neuropsychiatric symptoms measured within the MBI framework, because you know the, the MBI framework is is more specific in that with the emergence and six months persistence of symptoms, some of the transient reactive types of symptoms that might have been captured if you're measuring neuropsychiatric symptoms traditionally would be would be excluded. So you get a stronger signal for what are, are, are possibly behavioral sequelae of underlying functional disconnectivity and, and neurodegeneration. This applies 
in the synucleinopathies such that it seems that in those who have PD, the MBI burden is associated, you know, cross-sectionally with uh, biomarkers um, and cognitive clinical symptoms that are consistent with, say, the, the posterior deficits that uh, are associated with a greater risk for incident cognitive decline and progression to, to DLB. So there are, you know, there is ongoing work into that area, but I, th I think there are certainly parallels with AD in, in this nucleinopathies. And do you think that there is scope within the MBI checklist that your PA has worked on for adaptation for Lewy body disorders or, um, or, or a different threshold, for example? Certainly, I, th I think the, the, the only question is actually the threshold. The MBI checks, again, and this is, a, I think, one of the, the you know, remarkable things that came out of our PIA, is turning out to be really a robust rating scale. And, and every analysis seems to really show that it's capturing things that, that, that are very interesting and helpful. It's divided into five domains consistent with the five MBI domains. So the, the first is, is apathy. And there are even specific uh, symptoms for each of the apathy subdomains of decreased interest, decreased initiative, and decreased emotional reactivity. So you can really kind of get granular that way. And, and one would want to probably look at different brain behavior correlates of even the, of the apathy subdomains because I think they are relevant. The, the second domain is emotional dysregulation, and that includes both um, mood and anxiety symptoms. And based on our work so far, those really seem to be amyloidopathy type symptoms, right? How that plays out in, in the synucleinopathies is, is unclear, and, you know, and, and knowing that there's, there's overlap between these proteinopathies um, and different clinical dementia syndromes. The third domain is impulse discontrol. And it's the broadest domain. Uh, recently, recently, really nicely analyzed by Tony Sari from Finland in a network meta-analysis that's uh, uh, out in international psych psychogeriatrics, showing that there are some core symptoms. You know, um, argumentativeness, for example, is one that's, that's really important at, at detecting the overall clinical syndrome but also connecting to different uh, you know, types of, of impulse discontrol syndromes, uh, symptoms. And, and, and those can be kind of divided into, into two parts. One is that sort of agitation, aggression, irritability, impulsivity that we can see, again, uh, in, you know, often in, in Alzheimer's. But then there is the, the reward, salience, and response kind of disinhibition component and, and, you know, and, and part of that, you know, those sort of orbital frontal cortex type behaviors that we see. And, and that subdomain within the impulse discontrol um, domain, I think, is, is probably quite relevant to, uh, to non-AD dementias. The, the fourth MBI domain is the social cognition domain, looking at tact and empathy and sympathy and social behavior and intruding on other people's activities or speaking to people as if they're familiar. That probably is mostly FTD type of behavior, but you know, it hasn't really been measured 
in a systematic way to see to what extent it really applies in other dementias as well. And then the fifth domain is psychosis, which includes not only hallucinations, but delusions as well, which we, we know is certainly relevant to the Lewy body dementias and synuclinopathies. So to me, and, and you know, we, we're including the MBI checklist in our observational cohorts of you know, Parkinson's and PDMC-IDLB, um, I think there's definitely relevance uh, for, for not only capturing symptoms, but then using those, those domains to look at kind of endophenotypes or different aspects of the synucleopathy which might be associated with different clinical cognitive biomarker or you know, longitudinal outcomes. What are the hot topics in your field at the moment? I think biomarkers is hot everywhere and it's certainly hot in neuropsychiatric symptoms, whether it be any type of neuropsychiatric symptom measured anyway, or whether it be mild behavioral impairment as a global construct or domain specific analyses, understanding, you know, the availability, the, the, the utility of biomarkers in, um, in their relation to these symptoms is really important. And, and one can look at it both, but one can look at it two ways. Um, you can, you can frame the measurement of these MBI symptoms or neuropsychiatric symptoms, which are very easy to assess. You know, with a with a usually a, a very quick informant rated measure, then that captures a group that may be enriched for biomarker positivity. Uh, alternatively, the biomarkers, if you look at say you know uh, tau pet imaging, and and you know where is the tau, or if you look at you know MR in terms of atrophy. Uh, to what extent is that associated with neuropsychiatric symptoms, with MBI domains or global MBI burden? And, and, and that kind of bi-directional uh, approach is in being investigated in a, in a lot of you know, different, different labs, certainly ours. Um, the, the, the most practical is, is, can we get easy to access biomarkers that you know, associate with dementia risk. So for example, in the uh, NIAAA, you know, research framework for Alzheimer's um, with the amyloid tau and neurodegeneration, you know, in, in, in prodromal disease, when there are objectively measured cognitive symptoms and, and um, AD biomarkers, for example, we, we, we kind of know a little bit more the role of the neuropsychiatric symptoms in that when you when you take two groups of, of people with MCI, those with neuropsychiatric symptoms and, and certainly with MBI are more likely to progress. In the normal cognition group, it's a lot harder and it's a lot harder to aim your, your, your PET scan or your lumbar puncture needle, you know, at, at, people who are, uh, you know, objectively normal in cognition. I mean, and I, I, I do lumbar punctures and, and my research ethics board allows me to, you know, draw CSF from cognitively normal participants, especially if there's risk, but, you know, but I have other collaborators in, in various parts of Europe and their ethics board won't allow it. So finding a blood-based biomarker is obviously a huge 
um, you know, research endeavor around the world, because it, then it allows us to find those preclinical folks, you know, consistent with your field as well is, you know, can we find a, a marker that's easily accessible? Uh, that's not part of the, the, the ATN traditional framework. We, you know, and you know, amyloid, P tau, tau, neurofilament light is, seems to be a marker, probably more useful prospectively than, than cross-sectionally. But can we find, you know, snucleinopathies? Can we find, you know, markers for, for uh, different dementias and ones that associate with neuropsychiatric symptoms in advance of cognitive impairment that would allow us to also help differentiate from, from, you know, general psychiatric phenomenology in older adults. We know there's a great degree of specificity conferred from the stipulations in MBI that symptom emergence de novo and symptom persistence confer in detecting risk. But are there biomarker correlates that, that even amplify that signal such that then now you have a, a real consideration as to whether or not you, you well, you would, you would, engage, you know, uh, more detailed measures, both clinical, cognitive and imaging. But that's when, you know, the primary prevention story starts to come in or even, you know, secondary prevention in advance of cognitive symptoms. Is this someone in whom you would administer a disease modifying drug? And I think those are areas in which we're, we're really, you know, the, the field is, is exploring. Um, and then finding better ways to treat these symptoms in, you know, those who are suffering from dementia, you know, while the field has moved extensively to capturing preclinical and prodromal disease, we don't want to forget those who are the majority uh, who are actually, you know, experiencing dementia and suffering from the various neuropsychiatric symptoms. How can we identify those symptoms, treat them better, find medications and non-pharmacological interventions that are associated with efficacy and safety? COVID included, and, and um, ensure that we, we have optimal quality of life, that we, we ensure safety, that we can, we can preserve agency and personhood in people with dementia. When, when in the context of neuropsychiatric symptoms, agency and personhood can be lost or overlooked or ignored. So really embracing that internal world of someone with dementia to determine, um, you know, to what extent are these symptoms affecting their quality and how can we improve them and how can we engage everyone else to, to, to appreciate the importance of these symptoms because maybe they're not as concrete as cognitive symptoms, you know, as, as, uh, but they are, they are important. They are core criteria. They're fundamental to the disease course. And so increasing the profile and the awareness of those. And I think that's where syndromic criteria are very important. So I mentioned the IPA agitation criteria, which I think are landmark and really very important in our understanding of agitation. The IPA uh, updated the psychosis criteria in neurocognitive disorders. And we included mild, you know, mild neurocognitive disorders, MCI in that group. In, in harmony with that, our PIA also developed research and biomarker criteria for psychosis in, in uh, Alzheimer's and related neurocognitive disorders. And 
the these new uh, psychosis criteria um, allow sort of you know biomarker research in advance of overt cognitive impairment for associations with psychosis in late life and and dementia. New apathy criteria have just been published. They're 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 either in press or they're they're finally published, um, which which take the the Philip Robert's pan diagnostic apathy criteria and focus them in on neurodegenerative disease and neurocognitive disorders. And with the three domains that are reflected in the MBI checklist and the MBI criteria of decreased interest, decreased initiative, and emotional um, reactivity, where we don't have good syndromal criteria yet are for social cognition changes and for you know mood and anxiety disorders. And that, you know, mood and anxiety disorders, you know, and mood and anxiety symptoms being probably the most common in dementia. And yet we are still maybe perhaps stuck on a DSM framework for that or an ICD framework. And it doesn't reflect the underlying neurobiology. So notwithstanding the fact that most, if, you know, every robust treatment trial of antidepressants in dementia has failed, um, we still recommend treatment of depression. And so why is that? <laughs> and, and I think our criteria, which are based in psychiatric constructs in early and midlife, you know, a neurodevelopmental model of psychiatric symptoms is, is different from the presentation of anxiety and depression, those types of symptoms in neurodegenerative disease. If you think about it, DSM stipulates that a, you know, that the symptoms cannot be better accounted for by another medical issue. Would neurodegeneration, you know, and, and the buildup of amyloid, tau, synuclein, vascular burden, not be considered a medical condition that would better account for these symptoms? And if so, why are we still using DSM diagnostic criteria? This is the dilemma, and our field needs to really embrace nosology better um, and, and, and distinguish between chronic and recurrent psychiatric syndromes and, and you know, neuropsychiatric symptoms as sequelae of, of, of brain diseases, which also leads then to measurement-based care, uh, which is another area uh, of, of great interest for me. And and understanding what is you know what is the best source of information. Um, I mentioned agency and personhood. We want to inquire and try to understand the internal world of someone with dementia, but when they have anosognosia, and that anosognosia can not only be for cognitive deficits, but for functional deficits and for neuropsychiatric symptoms. So, this really changes care. If someone has anosognosia for neuropsychiatric symptoms and they come into clinic, how's your mood? Oh, I'm pretty good. Does that necessarily tell you how they're doing? And, uh, and, and so we need to be aware of that and proactive such that any assessments of cognition, function, and behavior um, should be assessed incorporating both the, 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 the patient and a, a, a 
informed caregiver, you know, reliable informant. And this actually is is in our most recent iteration of Canadian dementia guidelines explicitly that self-informant reports of cognition, behavior, and function are required for thorough dementia assessments and 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 workup. And I think our, our field really needs to appreciate that there can be that you know affective, you know, or behavioral anosognosia, because if someone says they're fine, we don't know that they're that that, that they are, and um, they can say their cognition is fine, and we administer, you know, a an MMSC or a RUDAS or a MOCA or an Addenbrooks or slums or whatever we want to, and we would see that objective difference. But if they say they're not depressed or they're not anxious, where's the objective, you know, um, frame of reference? And 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 without that, our 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 clinical work is is impaired. So I, I think uh, uh, you know we we need to explore that more, and that's again work I think that is important in the field and ongoing. I think that's really fascinating. I think I think the idea that we view several uh, psychiat neuropsychiatric syndromes through the lens of neurodevelopmental and working aid psychiatry, and the idea that 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 we should be embracing a whole different paradigm is is really challenging and really. It makes a lot of sense, and it's a bit frightening as well as a as a as a practitioner. It is again. It comes down to nosology. If if, if you look at DSM criteria, it its frame of reference is two weeks. Have you had these symptoms over two weeks? Sure, but what about the natural history? And to me, the real goods come in the the development of these symptoms, um, and you know, depressive symptoms in an adolescent versus someone who's 35 years old versus someone who's 45 versus someone who develops someone at the age of 70. That is a, you know, as a clinician, as an epidemiologist, those are distinctions that are really, really important. Why do our criteria and our rating scales, why are they silent? You look at a Beck anxiety inventory, a Beck depression inventory, they measure cross-sectional symptoms over a two-week range, the geriatric depression scale over a one-week range. I mean, in older adults, where is the understanding of the evolution of symptoms? And this is a discussion I have with my trainees in the emergency room, sometimes at 3 a.m., because someone will come into the emergency room and be 57 years old, and have a first episode psychosis and will be presented to me with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And I say, okay, is there a past history of this? Is this a first episode? What is the hormonal status? You know, is there, is, are they, are they perimenopausal? And um, our, our clinician trainees are not taught to think of natural history. And so they just take, you know, cross-sectional assessments consistent with our larger nosological frameworks of DSM and ICD and, and, and not really inquire about the natural history and the evolution. So to, to me, that's an area in our field that really requires great work. Could you tell me a little bit about the, the committee and how your group is organized in the PIA? Neuropsychiatric Syndromes Committee is co-led by someone from academia and someone from industry. And that's been a partnership um, I think going back, you know, uh, around 10 years or, 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 or so. Uh, and 
was developed to foster, you know, a partnership and inform drug development and testing uh, to include, you know, industry in the conversation as opposed to having a, a siloed understanding. And, and so we continue that. And I think it's very, very helpful because we have insights into clinical trial design and regulatory issues that we might not, you know, as a, as a clinician, as a, as a researcher. Um, and, and at the same time, um, those involved in developing and testing, you know, pharmacological interventions have an idea how clinicians and researchers think, you know, out in the field, which can inform study design. Um, and, and so the combination of the two is really a nice, you know, uh, petri dish and, and, and idea generator. It works really well. Um, we have 10 members of the executive committee, which is, which is diverse, you know, and we, we, we look at imaging and biomarkers and neurostimulation, but also measurement. We also look at, at, at you know, um, person-centered issues like, like ethics, um, you know, sex and gender and, and, and diversity. And, you know, we have um, members in training and like yourself, communication members and, and, and members across the, the spectrum of, of experience, of fields, of expertise. So, you know, clinical fields, while heavily influenced by uh, psychiatry and old age psychiatry, we have neuropharmacology, neurology, you know, vascular expertise. Um, we, we also have, you know, a mixture of clinician researchers and the researchers involve um, clinical trialists and epidemiologists, um, you know, imaging experts, measurement-based care, phenomenology, et cetera. The group is is robust and interactive and and very very friendly and fun fun. I mean, I really enjoy the time with with um, our PIA, and the discussions are interactive and robust and thought provoking. And everyone's everyone's just really really nice. So it's a fun group. Speaking of your group, uh, and you, you mentioned early career researchers, how how can they get involved in this fun group? I think. So we, 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 again, we welcome early career researchers and, and have, have roles for them. And, uh, and we have a dedicated, you know, um, you know, person to, to, to liaise with them and support them and address trainee needs. One of our goals actually in this next year is to, to develop um, a more formal mentorship program for, for junior members, uh, knowing that, that, um, trainees or early career folks have mentorship in their own institution, um, depending on the size of that institution or the busyness of their mentors, we're hoping to provide some sort of kind of lateral mentorship as well, or someone from a different institution with a different perspective, uh, still appreci uh, appreciating and respecting that, that existing mentorship that someone may, may have. So, um, yeah, it, it, over the over the next year, we're going to flesh this out more. But embracing junior members is really important to our PI. And I'll speak to my own experience in that in that my research career is extensively built on work that came out of the PIA, you know, um, you know, 10, 10, 10 years ago. And uh, and I want to I really want to make sure that that other people have that incredible opportunity 
you know, I come from an institution, especially, you know, 10 years ago, where there wasn't that that degree of expertise in neuropsychiatric symptoms and that that uh, neuropsychiatric dementia interface and having the exposure to thoughts and support and ideas from the PI at that time was seminal in my in my career. And I really want to make sure that our PI continues that because this is how our field grows. And so embracing junior members is our strength and and our our senior members are generous are, are intellectually generous to support and 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 help um junior members with research ideas with constructs with implementation what does your pia have planned and what are its aims for the coming year will you be presenting at aic we will be so we do have an frs and and you know, we submitted two and, and one was uh, accepted and involves uh, clinical and cognitive uh, outcomes and biomarkers of neuropsychiatric symptoms, um, we, sex differences in, in APOE and neuropsychiatric symptoms. We have MBI included in there. Um, Dev Devanand is presenting the results from his lithium AD, the lit AD study. Very exciting. And um, we also have just, you know, uh many many posters and uh and, and a few oral presentations as well our past chair corinne fisher is actually presenting the um the research biomarker psychosis criteria and i think that'll be really interesting exciting because as, as i mentioned they are they are in harmony with the ipa criteria and intended to really foster uh, research in, in you know systematic research into to biomarkers in the earlier stages. Um, we we have posters uh, across you know all, all the topics that I've discussed today. My own lab I think has about ten, you know ten posters, uh, presentations. It's um to me that's one of the just the best parts of AIC is is the ability to to see what people are doing at a very current level. The fact that there's so much in neuropsychiatric symptom, syndromes and neuropsychiatric symptoms to learn, and it's robust and it's moving fast, and you've got all the experts there. So I, I think it's a fantastic learning opportunity. We're um, doing some networking as well with, with, with junior members, and then down the road, we're going to have some more workshops on various um, um, neuropsychiatric symptoms uh, in in and, and across the cognitive spectrum from normal cognition through to subjective cognitive decline to MCI through to dementia proper. So we're trying to you know capture this the the, the spectrum. That sounds great. You've definitely sold me on on a few of those sessions. Certainly the um, certainly the, the lithium and AD sounds absolutely unmissable. Um, as do a few of the workshops as well. So that's going to be really cool. As, as a sneak peek. Uh, I mean, the abstract is out, but there's a psychosis effect with lithium, and I, I was very excited when I when I when I, uh, I I saw that 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 abstract um, again, which is which is in in press in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. But Dev is going to go into into detail, and so there's an agitation effect, a psychosis effect, a global effect. Very exciting data, and I think warrants um, a larger a larger study. Thank you very much. It, it's it's actually time to end today's podcast recording. Um, before before we go, can I have one final question? 
what advice would you give to any aspiring dementia researchers out there who are thinking of looking into dementia? My advice would be to not only look at current constructs and paradigms, but also to try turning them on their side and, and exploring different angles. Like we discussed, you know, psychiatric symptoms don't have to be viewed in a neurodevelopmental framework. They can view through a neurodegenerative one. So, you know, bouncing around ideas and with yourself in the shower, with other colleagues and friends, with, with, you know, uh, senior clinicians and scientists in, in PIAs, um, looking across fields, the inter PIA collaborations are a great way to take ideas from one field and cross pollinate into, into another. Um, because, you know, and this certainly happens clinically, but it happens in research as well. And sometimes we get into one, into, into kind of a fixed mindset. And if we have that kind of growth mindset um, of exploration and being creative, and I think, you know, just not being afraid to ask wacky questions is, is to me um, advice that, that, I would, uh, that I would suggest. And I can go back, I'll finish it off with, with Douglas Adams and, you know, uh, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And when the heart of darkness have created, it wasn't because it was an a priori plan as an endpoint that was defined. It was out of just sheer fun and creativity and research. And so to, to remember that exploration is part um, zigzagging around and kind of looking at the flowers. I think any podcast that ends with a Douglas Adams reference is, is, is going to be a good one. So uh, listen, thank you so much. It has been an absolute privilege to, um, to speak to you today. It's been wonderful um, getting um, an early psychiatry perspective um, on, on the field. And it's, uh, anytime anyone asks what, uh, what we bring to the field, I'm going to hold up you and your work. So thank you so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. I look forward to seeing some of the, the PA's work in, at, at AAIC. Thank you for listening. You can find profiles on today's panellists and information on how to become involved in iStart on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and also at als.org forward slash iStart. We'll be back tomorrow with the next recording in our iStart PIA Relay podcast series. Finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of our podcast. You can do this on our website and in your podcast app. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.